Welcome to the Extra Buttery Podcast. Today is our 30th episode. 30th! I can't believe we're here yet. And I think we average around maybe five listens per episode, so hey, we're all over the century mark. (laughs) I'm in Vancouver, my name is Jason Chen, and I'm joined by my gracious co-host, Robert Snow in Toronto. Yes. How's it going, Rob? Uh, It's going all right. I mean... um uh, Are things okay over there? We just had a little incident. Yeah, I mean, I don't know uh, how closely the folks in the audience are have been staying on top of Toronto news, but there was a pretty, uh, pretty terrifying thing that happened uh, here in Toronto yesterday. Uh, uh, the day we're recording this, um, the uh, guy plowed into a bunch of pedestrians uh, in a rented van uh, up in the north end of the city, and uh, he, ten people were killed. I think uh, 14 people were injured, and luckily they they captured the guy uh, without much further incident uh, not long afterwards, but it's uh, it's shaken up the city quite a bit. Our uh, thoughts and prayers obviously go out to all those affected by this terrible incident. Absolutely, yeah. For this episode, Rob and I decided to go on this crazy adventure and pick out our top 10 films of the 21st century. This was an unbelievably hard exercise for the both of us, or at least for my sake. I was inspired by this idea by a BBC list that put out the top 100 films of the century, and I thought for an episode, it'd be kind of cool to get a feel for what our top 10 films would be like. I think there will be quite a few differences. Neither Rob nor I have revealed our picks to each other, so you're hearing this for the first time. There should be some debate. There should be some argument. But overall, I think it's going to be a fun, fun, fun exercise. So, Rob, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Oh, do you want to lead us off with your uh, first pick? Okay, well, my picks are in no particular order. These just are the top 10 films because they are in different genres and slightly different periods. But my first film um, is Gladiator. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions. Loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Okay, all right. This is the Ridley Scott film with Russell Crowe playing Maximus as a gladiator who seeks vengeance upon his family. And this is the film that saw Joaquin Phoenix in a breakout role as the villain. And I love this film because of, obviously, the historical background to it, a time which I find personally very interesting. I think it brought back a whole genre of the historical action-adventure epic. I think this is really Scott's finest film, which was released in 2000, in quite some while. And this was peak Russell Crowe. And I've always really enjoyed his uh, performances. And so do you find it funny that um, pieces of the uh, the gladiator memorabilia, including what, what, at least one of the chariots... Uh, made up uh, part of his recent auction to uh, ma- uh, raise some funds for his divorce. Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> it was the, uh, like, I simultaneously thought it was hilarious, but also a little bit tasteless that uh, he would he would advertise it. I think he went with one of the big auction houses, like Sotheby's or Christie's, and he had all this mar- very, very uh, nice marketing drawn up with him, like, uh, giving a little cheers to the camera, he had a he had a tumbler of uh, scotch or something, uh, dressed in a tuxedo, and uh, with this very nice cursive writing, they wrote Russell Crowe, the art of the divorce. 
No way. They didn't really put that on there. A hundred percent. And it wasn't a joke. And actually, John Oliver from Last Week Tonight on HBO, uh, his show actually ended up buying a number of the pieces of memorabilia as part of one of his big like show ender uh, segments that he likes to do. And he's actually shipping a lot of it up to one of the last remaining blockbuster video stores up in Alaska. If you haven't seen that segment on, on Last Week Tonight, it's uh, it's actually pretty funny. Uh, but, uh, yeah, anyways, going back to <laughs> the movie that inspired these, uh, uh, this memorabilia auction. So what is it about Gladiator that really like, uh, that you think makes it belong with like top 10 of uh, 21st century? Well, I mean, I should begin that saying that top 10 is very subjective and it's, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. basically top 10 films I like the most. So not all of them will be like Academy Award darlings and not all of them will be like at the top of anyone's list. But these are movies that I really enjoyed watching. And Gladiator is one of those awakening movies, you know, like one of those movies you see kind of in your adolescence and you're kind of like, wow, this is so awesome. So when in 2000, when this was released, I was 12 years old. Mm. And this was one of those films that like just like really spoke to me as a kid it's about it's about this like true hero who goes through a lot of hardship and goes on this like grand majestic adventure and back in the in the day i remember i was really into like ancient rome and greek mythology and all this like european mm-hmm. history and medieval stuff so it really spoke to me and before that time i don't think i've ever seen an action adventure at this scale with this kind of violence and kind of like visuals because if if you remember like the, they had to rebuild the Colosseum and everything through oh, yeah. computer graphics. And if you yeah. watch it today, it still kind of holds up. So I thought at the time it was like the most incredible, like crazy, biggest thing I've ever seen. It was a spectacle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think I came to Gladiator maybe a couple of years after you did. Um, I think I was like a teenager or something when I first, I think I, I didn't even watch it all the way through the first time I... I saw pieces of it. Uh, Full disclosure, like, I did sneak in because I believe it's a rated R movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, like, but I know that uh, I think it was really one of the movies that kind of uh, reinvigorated the whole sword and sandal genre because like like yes. the Western, the sword and sandal genre had had a heyday back in the uh, the 50s and 60s. And, you yeah, know, Ben-Hur, Ben-Hur um, uh, arguably like uh, Ten Commandments, even though that's more like biblical you know, um, and then it kind of all built to a head with the infamous uh, Cleopatra uh, with uh, (laughs) Elizabeth Taylor and uh, Richard Burton. I think that was 1963, which uh, infamously is one of the the biggest movie flops of all time and actually bankrupted the studio that uh, financed it. And then I think for many years, the the idea of like a sword and sandal movie was frowned upon in in Hollywood. People look back to Cleopatra or or maybe more vaguely just in general, they were like... uh, we don't really want, we don't think this genre is, is worth it. But so for Ridley Scott to come and kind of come along in 2000 and say, uh, yeah, this is, this is something I want to do. I want to do it on this epic scale, spend all this money to recreate Rome essentially. Uh, yeah, it, uh, leaves an impression. Yeah. It, I think it was one of the few big budget blockbuster films that became like, um, really accepted by the Academy, which itself is quite rare. What's your first? For for me, my first pick has got to be um, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. In the common tongue, it says one ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, find them. 
I knew that would be on there. The Two Towers was on my short list, but I had to cut it out. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think maybe Lord of the Rings was for me what Gladiator was for you at around that age. Like, you know, I'd I'd read the books, obviously. I was really into the, the mythology, the lore of it. And it's got to be uh, up there with, like, the original Star Wars trilogy. It's the movie. It's, it's one, one of the movies that I've rewatched the most times. I think I've probably rewatched the all of those movies like 20 times extended edition uh a mix of both like extended edition multiple times for sure but uh and it's something that like i share with my brother and sister too like we the three of us always had a long tradition of watching movies together when since we were like really young and it's still like one of those movies that we can always go back to you know a lot of a lot of uh, sentimental connection to to that one the interesting about fellowship of the ring to me is that i feel like between those three movies that's the one that holds up the best over time do you ever, do you find that i mean yeah the um you know people will say what they will about two towers being kind of like a an interstitial movie like it's you know it's got too many pieces of the others to to yeah, to feel like a, a movie in its own right, you know, which you you uh-huh, may, right. which people will can definitely disagree with. Um, and then uh, Return of the King gets knocks for being really long or for having too many endings, which, you know, fair enough. I feel like the Fellowship of the Ring set up that universe in such a uh, confident way and showed that movies with that are based on that kind of epic fantasy or high fantasy can succeed commercially and critically and the craft that peter jackson and his team put into that in order you know the practical effects and shooting on location in in new zealand oh you know there was a lot of love and a lot of innovation that went into making those movies uh and proving to hollywood that it could be commercially viable and i think you know yes uh the the giant juggernaut that is game of thrones these days with what with their like spending a hundred million dollars on a season of television is a direct descendant of that yeah i was gonna say i think without lord of the rings we wouldn't have a lot of this medieval fantasy and game of thrones being one of them definitely yeah and i mean like game of thrones is interesting too when you talk about like the descendants of lord of the rings because I remember at the time that Fellowship of the Ring came out and the other ones did, you know, fantasy movies were still very much held uh, in a certain light with average moviegoers. Like you would talk to people and say like, oh, I can't stand Lord of the Rings. I fell asleep reading the book and I fell asleep watching the movie. (laughs) And and people were were like, you know, there was a there was a there was a people still hadn't uh, kind of accepted them as a. Uh, mainstream thing I think yeah and it was still very uh, very much a geeky thing because I mean you're seeing people watching Game of Thrones who are really active fans who back when Lord of the Rings was coming out they would have never considered themselves to be fantasy fans yeah so I think that the 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 role that that this movie played in kind of setting people up for that type of fandom is uh, is pretty important Um, so what's your what's your number two my number two is another year 2000 movie almost famous I thought we were going to Morocco. There is no Morocco. There's never been a Morocco. There's not even a Penny Lane. I don't even know your real name. So I'm a big Cameron Crowe fan. I I don't think he's a particularly consistent director. I think he's made some pretty bad films. But Almost Famous was one of those really talky, slow, dramatic movies that really sort of I enjoyed it was a different kind of film than what I was used to in in a way it felt like my first indie experience even though it's not really an indie Mm, film no yeah I can see that though but it was about a boy kind of going through growing pains and maturing I think I really connected with the main character he was a 
kind of like a it was an autobiographical film in in some ways. It was about a kid who's writing an article for Rolling Stone. So it's partly nonfiction. But what kind of blew me away was the performances in this film, and that includes Kate Hudson, who I to this day don't think she's done anything remotely close to what she did in Almost Famous. No, she really hasn't. It's not a film for everyone because honestly, they're not very many highs and lows it's a pretty pretty smooth sailing kind of film throughout obviously there are some moments that are more um, dramatic than others but i really enjoyed it I, I i every line of dialogue i think in that movie was superb and really well written i i really connected with everything yeah and i remember like um again i i don't think i i watched that one when it was released but yeah i watched this time many times after it was released and it grew on me it really grew on me for a 12 year old he doesn't know anything but i remember yeah i remember catching up with it later on of course it was probably on your recommendation in fact yes i and i watched it and i was like yeah okay i can see why why people are liking this like i you know i definitely related to the uh the main character there the uh the kid who's who's writing the article and like his the way he kind of has the the veil pulled off his eyes uh, when he sees the uh, less than authentic or um, right uh, more like commercially motivated decisions in the music industry and how it's not just about the music and, and stuff like that. So it's another way of saying that this didn't really make your shortlist, eh? No, but like <laughs> it, I guess what uh, what when I think about Almost Famous now, I'm still sort of sad or or disappointed that um crow crow's career never really took off after that i mean he's had a few attempts and and it seems like his past couple of releases have just been absolute stinkers i don't think he ever meant to be mainstream but i i do think didn't he do jerry Maguire as well i think he did jerry Maguire was great it's just that he never really had that one hit that really like made everyone look his way. Yeah, like he's never really been able to join the the likes of like. Yeah, he's never been considered elite. Uh, Scorsese or Spielberg or like other really marketable directors. Like uh, you, you kind of you kind of have to remind people when you say, "Oh yeah, Cameron Crowe." What's your number two? My number two is uh, going to be Children of Men by uh, Alfonso Cuarón. A hundred years from now, there won't be one sad fuck to look at any of this. What keeps you going? You know what it is, Theo. I just don't think about it. Oh, that was so good. That was, it was really close to making my list as well. All right. So we're syncing up pretty good. Um, yeah. The, yeah. For me, like, and it's been years since I last watched Children of Men. So I really feel like I owe it to myself to, to rewatch it. This is a 2006 film with starring uh, Clive Owen. And um, he plays a, I guess he, is he, did he start out as a journalist? Is that kind of the background I think of so, his character? Yes. Yeah. A uh, journalist who finds himself in this sort of uh, near future dystopian landscape where uh, humans have lost the ability to have children. And he kind of ends up caring for this single woman who uh, has been abandoned by her family and is the first woman to become pregnant um, in a long, long time. And he has to sort of protect her from all of these different factions who want to control her and use her for their own ends. And it's a it can be a very bleak film, um, but technically, uh, Quaron has always been like uh, he's always been lauded for his work with uh, innovations behind the camera and uh, long shots and 
uh, cinematography and it's all on display here. Like, uh, there's this one or as they're called like a long take, um, set in a car, uh, going through a forest. It's, uh, comes under attack from these, um, uh, terrorists, these fat, this faction of terrorists, and it's all done in one shot. And it's to this day, it's still amazing that they, they pulled it off. They actually got the shot. Yeah. I think it's one of those, one of the first films to really like, really make you pay attention to that one shot thing, eh? Like after Children of Men, it really started to become like something that a lot of directors tried to attempt or replicate. Yeah. And it like, you know, it's one of those things that obviously some people do really well and other people try it and it doesn't, mm-hmm. co- it doesn't really connect. In making Children of Men and kind of achieving a decent amount of, of commercial success and a lot of critical success, he really was one of the first uh, Mexican filmmakers in a long time to really force Hollywood to take notice of all of the creativity that was happening uh, in that country and uh, and really promote the country and of course you know we lay after that we saw uh, Alejandro and Aratu come through and Guillermo del Toro and the you know the three of them the three amigos they all they've all gone on to dominate the uh, the industry in in their own uh, ways. But by the way, this year or the year was released 2006, right? Yep. Yeah, this was the year where the big 3 all had really good films come out, eh? Because I guess yeah, that year was what what did Dinarto put out that year? Babel. Oh, right. Yeah. Which was like completely overrated and Children of Men should have gotten its its uh slot in the best picture yeah, nomination. Yeah, arguably, yeah. And Del Toro came out with Pan's Labyrinth. Right. Yeah. So they were they were all well represented, yeah. So that was a big year, yeah. It was a big year for all three of them. Number three, I think for me, may be a controversial choice. This is another Russell Crowe vehicle. It's a beautiful mind. 2635, Prairie Portage, Minnesota. These are latitudes and longitudes. There are at least 10 others. They appear to be routing orders across the border into the U.S. Extraordinary. So I've seen a lot of biographical films in my time, and they're all okay. Like including um, what was that Stephen Hawking one? Oh, uh, the theory, the of, theory everything, of everything. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was kind of like run of the mill, kind of like you know how biographical films are. Like there's this guy who goes through some tr- or woman goes through some trouble, overcomes hardship, and there's some sort of like happy ending or at least bittersweet. A Beautiful Mind was one of the few first autobiographical films that I felt had like another layer of plot and drama to it. And that was um, his schizophrenia. And I thought they dealt with it really well. And Ron Howard's like really good at kind of like meshing between reality and imagination. He did the same Forrest Gump, but I think like A Beautiful Mind was the perfect vehicle for him. And if you read the book, and I've tried, I'd never finished. It's pretty hard to adapt, so I was really glad that he could come up with all these like side characters like Paul Bettany and Ed Harris and Jennifer Collins. It was a very well-acted and well-edited um, and well-produced film, and I, I enjoyed a lot of it, most of it, 100% of it. And would you say like the, the revelation of the schizophrenia is still a bit of a twist nowadays for, for modern viewers? Like, well, do, you, do you think you, you saw that coming when you first... Uh watched it yeah when i first watched it i don't think i really saw it coming but with subsequent views like the uh, the surprise obviously you know kind of wears off but i thought the line that kind of like sealed it for me is when russell crowe says hey paul bettany you haven't aged one bit oh and yeah. 
that was kind of a very perfect in movie moment rather than you know a lot of films having like a close-up of the actor where he has his like face of realization he really articulates his realization to the audience and that I think was a really, really clever part because not a lot of films do it that way. No, and I think a lot of biopics, you know, the temptation is for the filmmakers to kind of lay out all the facts uh, right from act one and say like, here's this person, they're brilliant, but they have this uh, mental illness or they have this physical deformity or, or something and they, they kind of lay all the challenges out. But in, in A Beautiful Mind, they, they wait a pretty long time before they drop one of the, the biggest revelations about the character. And the era it set it in too, like it really makes you believe that Russell Crowe was like hired by the CIA to do some like code breaking and all that stuff. He, he gives in a super convincing performance. And, and mm-hmm. I think it was also really interesting to see the way they dealt with his schizophrenia where he kind of goes through this hardship where like he's trying to crack the code and then he finds that he's schizophrenic and then he has another hardship where he has to overcome and that's coming to terms with that. So I think he kind of goes through like multiple journeys and you really, by the end of the movie, get a really good sense of his character, which is like the key to any biographical film obviously what's your number three my number three was uh there will be blood i see the worst in people henry i don't need to look past seeing them to get all i need ah that's on my list okay so we can this is an incredible movie incredible we'll condense our things yeah of course yeah there will be blood uh obviously like paul thomas anderson probably i mean would you say that it's the best of his career so far that's tough but but I will say There Will Be Blood is the only Paul Thomas Anderson film I have on my list. Yeah, so there's that. Um, yeah, so. But I think I came to this movie surprisingly late, uh, despite the fact that it has a lot of stuff that I love, like Danny Day-Lewis, obviously, in the lead performance, a period setting, you know, the uh, the oil rush in California and, and Texas in the, uh, I guess it starts in sort of the 1910s. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think so. And it kind of moves throughout. And by the end of it, I think I think it's the 40s or 50s when the movie. Yeah, it has to be because his son is like in his 30s by that point. You know, this this is one of these great American movies, uh, despite the fact that it only came out, you know, 11 years ago. Uh, It really it was so overlooked. Yeah, but it, it gets right to the core of like. American do-it-yourselfness and build yourself up out of nothing and capitalism. You know, it 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 really drills into I, I think a lot of what still motivates American life. And yet, you know, the the intensity of the performances and the level of the craft that Anderson put into it is uh, it almost befits a movie that nobody would see because of because of how careful everything is it's like it's not the kind of thing that you would expect to to hit the the levels that it did Uh, yeah i think so um i can't believe anderson didn't win best director for this film by the way yeah i can't believe he's he's uh never won to this point i mean he's made so much so many great things (laughs) that's true that's true yeah He's going to be like the Roger Deakins of directing. He could be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Hitchcock and uh, Hitchcock never won for his whole career. And, you know, Scorsese wasn't until The Departed came out, I think, that he, he did. They he won. Which I think they kind of gave it to him because they kind of felt sorry for him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I feel like this I, I don't think with, The Departed was the best film. Well, no, no, not not from and not from like Scorsese's catalog either. But yeah. Uh, like, but yeah, it feels like for some reason, Anderson is kind of in that camp all, all, all of a sudden. Uh, my number four film is... 
Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. But I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. I remember that speech really well. So I thought about this one too. I love this film. First of all, it's Jim Carrey in a dramatic role, and he's excellent in drama. I don't care what anyone says. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Kate Winslet is in this, and she's quite good. But I thought I think the the driving force is Jim Carrey and the director Michel Gondry. So it's about this this man who breaks up with his girlfriend, and he's in so much pain that he kind of hires the services of this agency who can erase memories from your mind. And as they're erasing memories, his memories of his ex-girlfriend, he starts to realize that he prefers to keep the memories even though he's hurting a lot inside. He realizes that the value of these memories is helped shape who he is. And this was one of those films that like, it's not really drama. It's kind of like a fantasy element thrown in there. Sci-fi element throw in there. Oh, yeah. Because the, the uh, memory erasing thing. But the editing and the way they do it and the way they show how they're erasing his memories is awesome. It is so creative and intelligent. And I love the story, too. And, and, and the performances, like I said, were amazing. You know, when you're talking about something as hard to describe or hard to visualize as memory and uh, feelings and the the act of like deleting memories. I mean, you can go in a very, uh, very matter of fact type of way and just show flashbacks of what's being deleted. But Gondry decides to like, you know, f- f- uh, make these dreamscapes where they're like in a bed on a beach or they're being mm-hmm. they're being pulled apart across this like dark field of ice and uh, mm-hmm. trying to like grasp for each other, but they just get pulled away by some sort of unseen force. And it's, it's very evocative of like the real dreams that people have, you know, they can't really be properly explained. And the, mm-hmm. and meanwhile, like the cinematography, the hits of color, you know, the, the, uh, yes. uh, the choice to have Kate Winslet have like blue and orange in her hair. And uh, you know, it, it just burns, it burns itself into your head. Yeah. This it's funny. Cause as I was thinking about this movie, I kept thinking about the blue hair she had. And another film that was on my shortlist but didn't make it was Blue is the Warmest Color. And the girl in that, uh, Leia Seydoux, also has blue hair. And it's a romantic drama as well about like pain and love and everything. And I thought it was just really interesting that a lot of films that I've seen that really spoke to me about, you know, how love hurts and blah, 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 and all that sappy stuff, um, (laughs) has a female character where she has dyed her hair in like a really catching, eye-catching color, be it blue or red. And I thought that was super interesting. But anyway, I digress. So for my fourth pick, I'm going with uh, The Dark Knight. See, madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little... I had a tough time with this one. No, it didn't make my shortlist either. But go ahead. Tell me why you love it. I think for me, you know, this and this isn't going to be like a super original take, but, you know, it is one of those movies that really kind of set us down the path that we are today. Um, it legitimized superhero movies in a way that ba- the, the, its predecessor, Batman Begins, definitely went a long way towards. But the, the Dark Knight just said to people, no, like uh, this stuff may be based in a pulpy comic book medium, but it can be serious. It can be uh, dramatic. It can have uh, 
it can have more real world implications than than you typically expect from the genre. When you were picking these films, did the cultural impact of the film have like a big say in in making the list? I definitely thought about it in the in that way because I'm I'm also thinking about like, you know, movies that had a huge impact on me but also you know, where they kind of stand in the 21st century as far as we are in the 21st century. Uh-huh. You know, of course, The Dark Knight is one of the biggest movies from from this uh, this century so far in terms of how much money it's made, how much cultural impact it has. You know, people are always quoting it. I mean, you know, you talk about the performance by Heath Ledger as the Joker and the the, the way in which he buries himself into that character and arguably didn't really come out of it before he died. But you but you're you're sort of you're sort of conflicted about it though. Yes, I am. I'm super conflicted about this one actually. And the reason is because I think as much as I enjoyed the film, I think at the end of the day I enjoyed watching the film because it's Batman and for Heath Ledger's performance and not necessarily for the story or the action or the cinematography or anything else. I think the only reason I'd ever want to watch it is for Heath Ledger's performance. I could fast forward through everything else, to be honest, and still be okay with it. (laughs) And I think that's why at the end of the day, I was like, I I can't have this film on my list if I'm willing to skip a lot of it. Okay, so number five for me is, this might be surprising to some people, but The Wrestler. I'm an old broken down piece of meat. And I'm alone. And I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me. This is Darren Aronofsky's uh, movie about Mickey Rourke, who is a over-the-hill wrestler who has a ton of personal problems. He's, he's divorced. He's got a daughter he doesn't talk to. He's on drugs all the time. He lives in a trailer. And it's about this guy who refuses to let go of his past. And he begins a relationship with a stripper who's played by Marissa Tomei. And it's it's interesting because uh, Mickey Rourke was like this huge sex symbol back in the 80s and 90s, eh? Oh, yeah. And then he kind of, yeah, he disappeared for a while, went, like, tried to become like a pro boxer of some kind. And in this film, he is completely unrecognizable. Like, he, he, we went through this, like, routine where he, like, actually, like, became, like, the size of a wrestler and but there's this like so much eter- internal pain that you almost feel like is semi biographical, semi based yeah, on reality. Yeah. And I love the performances and I love the story. It was one of those few films that really kind of t- made me tear up a little bit because I was so sympathetic towards the main character. Oh wow, <laughs> they broke they broke through the shell. Yeah, and it was this was one of those Darren Aronofsky films where like at no point did I feel disgusted. Because he has a he has a tendency to really push those boundaries sometimes. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, and so this was a film that I thought was just like just worked on every single level. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, ashamed to admit that I have not yet seen it. And oh, go yeah, see it! Yeah, it's one of the few Aronofsky films that I that I haven't seen yet. But I think this is one of his most underrated works because he's not trying to like be pretentious or like trying to prove a point or anything he's just showing like the life of a guy who's over there. yeah yeah and it, it's and it's so touching it's super touching. yeah it's it's definitely on my list but for my uh, number five pick i'm going with uh i'm fast forwarding us to to 2012 with the act of killing oh wow a uh, documentary 
every single one of them was boastfully recounting the grisly details of the killing. And when the survivors and the human rights community in Indonesia saw that, they said, you're onto something terribly important. Keep filming the perpetrators. If we're throwing documentaries into this, I wasn't prepared. I might oh, have no. to change my list now. <laughs> well, I felt like the genre had to be represented in some way. I wasn't sure if uh, if you'd be able to fit one in, but okay. um, the for me, this was a this was a documentary that I saw. Um, it came, the movie came out in 2012, but I don't think it was available on Netflix for maybe three years after that. This was a doc. This was a documentary that far and away, I came out of it feeling incredibly angry but incredibly impressed by what the filmmaker was able to capture because he talks to these men who were direct participants in the ethnic cleansing that happened there i think it was a couple of decades ago now and these are guys who are still to this day uh, local heroes in indonesia they're able to drive around in convertibles and uh, show off their wealth they're able to go on uh local news television mm -hmm. this year and brag about how many mm -hmm. people they killed and so, and they suffer no repercussions and uh oppenheimer the director he gets these guys to reenact their murders on camera which they very willingly do they they mime out how they used to choke people with uh garut wires and what they used to do with the bodies and and uh and then he works in all of these really visually weird reenactments with like dancers and he gets uh, some of the guys, some of the perpetrators to dress up in like women's clothes and kind of like do this interpretive dance stuff. But it's all very strange and evocative. And you're like, you're like, you know, he could have gone in many different directions with this story, but he chose to really think about the visual side as well. And uh, in, in spite of how much rage it inspires in the viewer, when you think about the injustice that hasn't been uh, the, the injustice mm -hmm. that's, that's still there mm -hmm. in the country. I, full disclosure, have not seen this documentary, but I've, I've always been, you know, looking forward to watching this whenever it's available. But if I had to submit one documentary in my top 10, it's Senna. Oh, yes. Yeah, we've talked about this. Yeah, which is, I think, mid-2000s, and it's Asif Kapadia, I think. And it's about the Brazilian F1 racer Ayrton Senna, who obviously tragically died in a in a car crash. But uh, yeah, that would have been my pick. Since I've already told you that There Will Be Blood is on my list already, what's your number six? Oh, okay. So uh, I will go with 12 Years a Slave. Oh, this one nearly missed the cut, too. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, for me, 12 Years a Slave, like, setting aside, you know, we've already talked about how, like, cultural impact is kind of factored into some of my picks here. Um, yes. Because this was this was an important movie uh, in terms of uh, the director, Steve McQueen, being, I think he was the first black Best Director winner. And, you know, he's telling a story that about a, a free black man played by uh, Chibatel Ejiofor, who uh, was a was a free man living in, I think it was New York State and gainfully employed and was uh, well liked in his community and was actually abducted into slavery by a couple of random guys who saw him playing his violin uh, in a public park and they took him down to the the south and he became a slave for as the, the title suggests 12 years and finally was able to 
get uh, get free of it and reunite with his family, um, who were never offered an explanation for where he had been that whole time, because naturally they, you know, the people who took him didn't see him as a as a person. And it's the way McQueen, you know, who had come from a background as like a video artist and a guy who made works for art galleries. He kind of comes into a story that, you know, based on a true story type of type of work and injects his very specific sense of visuals into it and works with the time scale in the movie and does fascinating things with the soundtrack and uh, the sound editing to to really give you a spread out sense of just how much time is going past for for this character and how it weighs on him and how it kind of turns him into somebody that he really wasn't before. I would say the only reason this movie didn't make my top 10 list is because I find very little rewatch value in this film just based on the subject. Yeah, it's hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Just based on the subject matter alone. I'm glad I watched it. It's an incredible film. Um, Unfortunately, subjectively, it just doesn't make my top 10. Number seven. This is going to be familiar to listeners of this podcast and Robert Snow because I talk about this film nonstop. My number seven film is The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Can't believe I'm sitting with none other than Jesse James. Manny's the night I stayed up, my eyes open, my mouth open, just reading about your escapades. They're all lies, you know. It is interesting the many ways you and I overlap. You're the youngest of three James boys, and I'm the youngest of five Ford boys. You have blue eyes, I have blue eyes. You're five feet, eight inches tall. I'm five feet, eight inches tall. I honestly believe I'm destined for great things, Mr. James. Oh, yes, I knew this was going to make an appearance. So this is the slow burn cowboy western based on Jesse James. Even though he's not the main character, he's played by Brad Pitt. But the main character is Casey Affleck, who I would argue that this film is his big coming out party as like a legitimate elite actor in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. setting aside all his stupid off-camera bullshit. I really love the film. The cinematography is great. The story is fascinating. It's one of those films, like, you have to be in the right mood for, and you have to, like, subject yourself to it because it's got a really long runtime. But once you really get into it, once you sit down and enjoy it, I find it incredibly engrossing. I think I could watch this movie nonstop. All the time. Yeah, and I remember you, like, talking it up for years and years, and I was like, I was thinking to myself, how could this... You were skeptical. <laughs> I was skeptical, because, I mean, like, I, I'd seen a trailer for it, and I think I'd I'd already seen a, another uh, later movie by the director, mm-hmm. Andrew Dominic, He'd, and I wasn't... Wasn't that good. Yeah, it was called Killing Them Softly, and I really wasn't that jazzed about it, and... We I, went to see that together. Did we? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I remember, like, yeah, you, you were familiar with him, and uh, so yeah, I think you ended up liking the movie, that movie a little bit more than I did, but, yeah, it was... Uh, then I, th- I think it finally came to Netflix, like, last year or the year before, Netflix Canada and I was like all right I got to see this thing and I did and I was I was pretty blown away by it I mean I don't think I could really you were blown away yeah yeah I was like I could totally see what you saw in it uh for the most part Mm -hmm. but I still like as enjoyable as it was and and as technically impressive as it was um I don't think it had enough of a connection with me to really for me to put it on on my list but yeah 100% I can I think that's what most people felt like it didn't really connect with a lot of people yeah which is why I never sold well. Your turn, number seven. All right, for me, that's going to be Boyhood from 2014. I mean, it's not that I'm that happy. What do you, what do you expect? You know what I'm realizing? My life is just going to go like that. This series of milestones. 
getting married, having kids, getting divorced, the time that we thought you were dyslexic when I taught you how to ride a bike. Ah, I knew it. I knew this was going to make it. <laughs> I'm going to have to disagree with you on this one, but go ahead. Why do you like it? All right. All right. So for me, Boyhood, I mean, talk about uh, talk about a movie that uses one of the most fascinating special effects uh, available to anyone, which is time itself, and uses it to the fullest extent that it can literally showing an actor uh, growing up from uh, the age of like five or six years old all the way up till he's leaving for college. And a filmmaker who decides, uh, this is Richard Linklater we're talking about, who decides that he is uh, he's going to wait until he has all the footage he needs, slowly piecing it together year over year until he has everything to make this movie work. The story itself and the plot are not super special, and by any means, you know, there's no no crazy challenge to to overcome or uh, or any any kind of genre stuff. It's literally just people growing up, getting older, learning lessons, you know, uh, trying to make the lives of other people around them better. And yeah, I found it, it really, really touched, uh, touched a chord with me and uh, I will sing its praises forever. (laughs) I definitely give it props for its technical expertise and how exactly how hard it was. And, and I know Rob likes his uh, coming of age films about precocious kids. So this is true. Maybe it's because I, I like to think I was one. (laughs) Well, maybe you were, I don't know. We'll have to ask Mrs. Snow when she comes on the show one day. She has bugged me to come on the show. Actually. Well, what, what are we waiting for? <laughs> Mrs. Snow, you're more than welcome. Believe me, it's 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 not me or you. It's Robert. <laughs> um, on to number eight. You're going to like this one. It's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. We're not so very different, you and I. We've both spent our lives looking for the weaknesses in one another's systems. Don't you think it's time to recognize there is as little worth on your side as there is on mine? Now I'm kind of jealous. Really? Why? Yeah. Well, because I love that movie and I I didn't even consider it. Oh, well, would it make your top 10? Yeah, it might actually bump out one that's going to make you hate me a bit, but... But that you haven't revealed? Yeah. Okay, all right. I'll wait for it then. But Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a slow burn dramatic spy thriller movie starring Gary Oldman, who should have won Best Actor that year but he didn't and features like i think i think it's safe to say this is an ensemble cast movie isn't it yeah i mean it's it's got a pretty big cast they all have have a lot of like equally weighted parts right and so anyway it's about um based on a book and it's about george smiley who's played by oldman and he's trying to solve this mystery where i think an agent gets killed and the whole operation goes wrong. And everything about it, what I love, is that it's so carefully directed, so carefully plotted. Like, every scene in the film tells you something. Um, it didn't really strike me as, like, a great film the first time I saw it. Because, honestly, like, the plot can be confusing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. If you miss certain lines of dialogue. But the more I watch it, the more I'm like, man, this is, like, one of the best spy thrillers ever. It is so good. Yeah. Well, I mean, the back the background of this one is that 
it's based on the the first novel in the so-called Carla trilogy by John le Carré. Yes. And some people will actually credit le Carré for kind of inventing or at least documenting because he actually worked in the uh, uh, Secret Services um, for, for the UK uh, earlier in his career. He was Tom Clancy before Tom Clancy. <laughs> yeah, basically. But uh, le Carré has sort of documented in these books a lot of the what we call tradecraft nowadays, a lot of the the techniques and the you know the little subtle things that agents will do in the field uh, to get intelligence or to oppose their their enemies and all, all these things like it has the bones of that of of the real uh, techniques in there okay so number nine this might come out of the blue a bit but I had to think really hard on this one and I kind of had to rewatch certain clips on YouTube but it's silver linings playbook not that I give a fuck about football or about your superstitions, but if it's me reading the signs, I don't send the Eagles guy whose personal motto is Excelsior to a fucking Giants game, especially when he's already in a legal situation. Unbelievable. Wow. This is unbelievable. How did you know all that stuff? I did my research. Oh, wow. Okay, that, I did not expect that one. Yeah, so this is a David O. Russell film about two really flawed and hilarious characters played by Bradley Cooper and uh, Jennifer Lawrence. I love this film because it dealt with uh, mental illness in a very funny way. And I don't think many films did that. And it was a very good, if you strip away everything else, it was a very good romantic comedy. I think the chemistry was great. I think it has tons of rewatchability. I think the the screenwriting and the lines are perfect. I think Jennifer Lawrence's performance is probably one of the best, if not the best in her career, because I think it's a very difficult um, role to play. I think in the original production, um, Anne Hathaway was supposed to play the main character. Oh, and yeah. I mean, it, it would have been a totally different film. I think it gets overlooked because of the genre it's in. And because Jennifer Lawrence has obviously done a lot of other things and so has Bradley Cooper. But I think this is two actors at the top of their game playing roles that people don't expect them to play. And I think they pulled it off fantastically. Hmm. Yeah. All My right. only gripe with this film is Robert De Niro's character. To me, he's still like this really like brooding, tough gangster type. And he doesn't really play that in this role or in this film. So that kind of threw me off. But overall, I, I loved it. I would watch this film any hmm. day. All right. Yeah, I don't... Uh, I mean, it. I can't say it made a huge impact on me when I first saw it. But uh, uh, yeah, I can, I can see the value in it. So uh, weirdly, I think maybe you were on number nine, but now I'm on my eighth one. Probably skipped you. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, uh, so for me, my next one is uh, Mad Max Fury Road. We go back? Hmm. Back? Yeah. I thought you weren't insane anymore. What are they saying? He wants to go back from where they came. Citadel. What's there to find at the Citadel? Green. Oh, that's on my list. That would be my 10th. So there's my 10. Okay. So we'll we're, go over we're, them in the, in the, in the, end. Okay. But yeah, Mad Max. So, I mean, obviously this, this only came out three years ago, but it is, it is still just a gigantic movie for me. Like, yeah. um, you know, it, it inspired me to rewatch or to, to watch for the first time, uh, rather, um, the, the entire, the entirety of the series by George Miller kind of immersed myself in the world. I ended up, uh, uh, getting really into one of the the, the video games that came out uh, connected to the release, which <laughs> was actually really good. It, it doesn't document any stuff from the movies. It's kind of its own thing, uh, but uh-huh. it's a lot of fun. Uh, I've heard that. And I got I got so into Mad Max fandom with this. 
and it is so good though. Yeah, and this this one is like, you know, it is George Miller really delivering on everything that this series promised uh, in the earlier installments because now he has he has the combination of all of his practical experience uh kind of cobbling these movies together out of nothing, uh, which he really had to do in in a couple of the earlier ones, and then bringing to bear like a full bore Hollywood budget to take care of all the rest of it and seamlessly blending CGI and practical effects and uh, giving you this like nonstop chase of a film that you never get tired of watching. Uh, I mean, I just can't say enough good things about it. I 100% totally agree with you. Um, even though it's number 10 on my list, it's definitely not in last place, but it's a truly fantastic action film. Like all these diehard people can just like screw off because this blows diehard out of the water. Oh, yeah. This is the best action film I've ever seen. And I have no problem saying that. I know everyone's taste is a little different, but the world building, the action, the characters, I thought all of it was excellent. And I, I, it, it can be, I think, draining to watch it because everything happens so fast and there's so much going on. But I almost feel like that's what an action film should be. And once you start watching it, it's like a two-hour roller coaster. Yeah, and for all the people who kind of, you know, they hear the words action movie and they kind of think to themselves, oh, it's just a movie for boys. And No, it's not. This is... This is this bucks that norm uh, pretty hard. It, uh, you know, it, it features Charlize Theron front and center. She's arguably the lead, if not the main character of the movie, despite the fact mm-hmm. that the max of the title is uh, is still there. Who says like no lines? <laughs> yeah, he, uh, Tom Hardy as Max. You know, he's uh, he's doing some he has typical weird stuff with his uh, vocal performance, but uh, no, this this is really Charlize Theron's movie, and the. You know, it's a movie that is able to say something about feminine equality or feminism without feeling like it's hitting you over the head with some sort of uh, message. It stands up for the, the female characters in the universe of the of the movie uh, without making them into like uh, harpies or, or, you know, like um, mm-hmm. without belaboring the point. Uh, and it's, that's something that's very hard for movies to do in general, let alone in a, in a genre that, uh, you know, traditionally pushes women far to the side mm-hmm. if it ever depicts them at all. A hundred percent agree with everything you said. What are your, uh, other films? Your, the rest of your top 10. So yeah, because we've kind of like, we've agreed on a couple of our picks and, you know, we're sort of out of sync here, but the, you, uh, called on uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. So that was the one that, I think I would have also added to the list and I might have bumped I might have bumped Moonlight in favor of that. Hey, let your head rest in my hand. Relax. I got you. I promise. I'm not gonna let you go. Hey man, I got you. There you go. Ten seconds. See that right there. You're in the middle of the world, man. Because I know you love Moonlight, but I do. I do. That was like that's if there was a number eleven, Moonlight would be number eleven. All right, I thought so. And for me, like even though the a movie that came out this year, uh, Call Me by Your Name, I felt like I I identified with the like the cinematography and the musical choices and everything in that film a little bit more than I did in Moonlight. I can't ignore like what Barry Jenkins kind of brings to the table with this one. You know, he's he's doing such innovative stuff with 
uh, depicting a man's life over the course of three very different periods of his life, choosing three different actors to portray those different sections, doing some very interesting stuff with combining you know, very different uh, genres of music on the soundtrack, like classical music that bleeds into hip hop, you know, making a movie for such a limited budget, uh, I think in the span of like 18 days. Yeah. I I think this was kind of also um, Mahershala Ali's coming out party. Um, He, he has like a bit role. He's not the main character, but he has a pretty important role in the film. He knocks it out of park. Um, Janelle Monet, she's really good. Everyone was really good in this film. But what really struck me about this film is that a lot of times you talk about feeling things when you watch film. This film really made me feel things. Like, not just emotions, but, like, there are certain shots of, say, his face in the water when and, and you got um, droplets coming down his face. You've got the camera in the ocean when he's learning how to swim. You've got rags on clotheslines just blowing in the air you got sand at the beach and it really just felt so real and the texture was so in your face and so hard to ignore i i don't know if i've ever seen a film quite like it so you're saying like they can they can throw out the whole 4dx thing that 30 dollars tickets where they spray water in your face <laughs> yeah that uh, yeah that's that stuff is stupid even the d-box stuff i think is really oh uh, yeah it's all in the same category for me yeah exactly and so this was the movie where like i i watched it in the theater not knowing what to expect and then i sat in the seat for like freaking five minutes after the credits finished rolling because i was just i was blown away of just how good it was and i remember sitting there that day and i was like this is gonna win best picture and i'm glad it did so for the final one i hear my my number 10 uh, i have to wrap my man uh guillermo and uh <laughs> select shape of water when he looks at me the way he looks at me he doesn't know what i lack or how I am incomplete. I knew it. It got some heat when it won Best Picture for being, you know, weird or for being too Hollywoody or, you know, it got, a, you know, and, and I can see all those criticisms. I can understand them. But this is a movie that should not have been nearly as, as successful as it was. It should not have been able to synthesize all these weird little bits of like monster movies and romance and period flicks. And, and yet it does. And, you know, and setting aside, you know, the potential ick factor that some people might experience from, you know, what could, could be called like a bestiality type of subplot, you know, a woman falls in love with a fish man and, you know, is depicted having sex with him on screen. Um, that might have been a total deal breaker for audiences a long time ago, but that's a movie that can happen now. And not only that, Del Toro is able to use that potentially weird, potentially deal breaking interaction to talk about stuff in real life. He's able to use it, you know, to talk about people who uh, who have you know, suffer from disabilities or people who different sexual orientations, you know, anybody who's struggling in society to kind of fit in. Um, he's able to, to take this weirdly fantastical thing and, and apply it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really, really cool. Yeah. So just to recap, uh, my top 10 in order of release date is gladiator, almost famous, a beautiful mind, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, 
There Will Be Blood, The Wrestler, The Assassination of Jesse James, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Silver Linings Playbook, and Mad Max Fury Road. All right. And for me, also in order of release, we've got um, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, Children of Men, There Will Be Blood, The Dark Knight, The Act of Killing, 12 Years a Slave, Boyhood, Mad Max Fury Road, Moonlight, and The Shape of Water. I do need to mention two, three films that I had a lot of trouble cutting. And the first, the first was Toy Story three, and I kind of wanted to rep a animated movie, but I, but I mean, I love this and Inside Out, and I couldn't really decide. And at the end of the day, I mean, I don't think animation is what I tend to gravitate towards. So even though I really, really enjoy the films, I still prefer human actors and and real drama and whatnot. The other two films were another. <laughs> Russell Crowe vehicle, Master and Commander, which I think is a very, very underrated film from Peter Berg. That's up there for me as well. Yeah. And the third one was actually Casino Royale. Oh, yeah. Because I think it's another action movie that kind of reinvented a certain genre. And I I do have certain complaints about the film, but overall, I think it was completely well done. Um, I could watch that movie over and over again for ages, too. The other thing I would kind of notice while I was doing this is that a lot of my films tend to be like mid-2000s and forward or even past that so from 2000 to 2000 i'd say eight is where most of my films fall in oh yeah and so maybe i'm just being like a curmudgeon but remember how i keep saying like oh we haven't had a good year in ages (laughs) yeah Uh, so i kind of went back and i feel like 2003 and 2006 were really strong years but from like 2013 to 2017 i had maybe like 10 films combined from all those years Whereas in other years, I've had like five to eight on the short list. So I don't know if that says something about me or just the quality of film in general. <laughs> but it seems like a lot of films I like tend to be more from the early 2000s. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, everyone's got a, a couple of decades that really speak to them. I mean, uh, I was I was a little bit daunted when I, when I first went back uh, on Letterboxd to kind of begin this process because uh, it told me that I'd seen 360 movies in the 2000s and then I'd seen 630 movies in the 2010s. <laughs> okay, so that that kind of tells you like what what kind of era that you um, belong to when in terms of watching it yeah because it, it's a, you go to the you go to your general films page on letterboxd again shameless plug for this fantastic site if you're a film lover and you're not on it what are you doing with your life <laughs> this isn't complete but it's i think fairly accurate of the trend i've watched 540 films released into 2000s but in the 2010s I've watched only 300. Oh, yeah. So there it's almost totally flipped. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> Depending on how you define the whole best of the 21st century thing, like I don't, I didn't mention any Wes Anderson in here. Yeah, that's surprising. That's yeah. Me. Like, what the hell? I think maybe, maybe if called upon, I would, I could very easily swap out like 12 Years a Slave for uh, Grand Budapest Hotel or Moonrise Kingdom. So. Bear that in mind. I also would go to bat for Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou because I'm one of the few people who really adores that movie. You know, and absolutely, if anybody out there thinks that we're crazy about any of these picks, you know, you have to come and yell at us on Twitter. Um, because yeah. okay. that's the way people work through their feelings nowadays. Thanks for joining us on this epic journey through, <laughs> uh, through the movies of the 21st century. On this fun exercise. Yeah, and... 
you know, definitely uh, take some inspiration from us and choose your own shortlist and join the conversation. Tell us about it. But anyway, thank you for listening. Be sure to check out our website, www.kinetoscope.ca. My name is Jason Chen from Vancouver. And I'm Robert Snow in Toronto. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.